Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we are continuing in our series entitled Important Prophecy Terms, and we are comparing and contrasting seven seven sets of terms. And the first one that we've been in for the last uh, number of programs is what I consider to be the important, most important of the seven, and that's understanding the difference between the Son of God and the term the Son of Man. They're both Jesus, but they are, if you understand how they're used uh, when people are being spoken to and who's speaking to them, and the term Son of Man is used as opposed to the Son of God, it if you understand the differences in those uses and the intent for the use of those terms, it really, really opens your eyes to the scriptures and to understanding God's purpose and what he's saying in his, in his, in his words and the flow of events that he has laid out in front of us. If you get them mixed up, any of these seven, but to, to these seven sets of terms, but particularly Son of man versus son of God, it can really, really lead you astray in your understanding, particularly when uh, we have so much debate today about scriptures and whether or not they are addressing Israel or whether or not they are addressing the church. And if you are in a church right now that is um, basically what they call reformed or covenantal, there is a strong tendency whenever you get away from the basic gospel message. We all, regardless of your denomination, regardless pretty much of your uh, doctrinal beliefs, uh, the gospel is pretty much the same as Jesus Christ crucified, buried, resurrected. Uh, He is the Son of God. But when you get away from that, when you get outside of the simple gospel, and, and, and basically if you want to go to 1 Corinthians 15, one through four, some people want to say one through eight, but basically that is the clearest, shortest, most concise description of the gospel. It is core, it is critical. Don't misunderstand me in any way, but God gave us 66 books, and he gave us so much more than just that simple understanding of the gospel. That gospel is manifested throughout the entire Bible, but it is manifested in different ways. And there is truth to Israel, there is truth to the church, and there is truth to the unbeliever. And if you don't understand those differences, particularly Israel and the church, you get so mixed up. And there are more and more churches today, more and more teaching programs on TV and radio that want you to believe that where it says Israel, they really mean the church. And I honestly, honestly, through my study of the Word, and I don't spend time in, in uh, uh, commentaries and so forth trying to figure out what 
somebody's trying to tell me about a particular passage, I really want to go to the passage and ask the Holy Spirit, lead me into an understanding of what this means and look at the context of what's going on there. I want to be, if you want to put this in legal terms, I want to be a constitutional lawyer. I don't want to be a case law lawyer. A constitutional lawyer is one whenever a case is being brought for in front of them to be adjudicated, they go back uh, whenever possible. They go back to the original source document, which is the Constitution. And our Constitution has lasted longer than any other similar document uh, in history because God, I believe, was in the development of the people who put that Constitution together. So a constitutional lawyer goes back to the Constitution a case law lawyer will go back to case law from the last case that was adjudicated that's similar to what he's looking at. And if somebody was, for lack of a better term, a slick lawyer and they got the wording changed to, to meet their needs and a judge agreed with that and the jury agreed with that, that then becomes case law. And it may be, and a lot of times is, different from what the Constitution says, but because it has been agreed to by a court of law and a jury, uh, in a lot of cases, therefore it's law. And I believe that's what's happened with the Bible, is that theologians, uh, seminaries and whatnot, go back and look at what man has interpreted the word to be, and as man has interpreted man, has interpreted man, has interpreted another man, it gets distorted, and that's what we're dealing with today. We want to be constitutional biblicists. We want to go back to the source document whenever possible. And God says, this is everything you need for life and godliness, and I believe God. So that's what we do is we spend our time here. And if you do that, you'll see the, the contrast, the clear contrast between the use of the word son of God and son of man as well as these other six pairs of terms that I felt were important to understand. I'm sure there's others, and we may discover those as we go along, but nevertheless, we're starting with these seven right here. And we're in the Son of God, and we have been looking at uh, why God uh, basically sent Jesus, and of course we know that it was for his death, burial, and resurrection, but he told the Israelites uh, in the beginning, and we went to Deuteronomy 18 in our worksheets that are available here at the radio station, that he was being sent to them as a prophet, and that as the Old Testament is developed, they understood that he was being sent to them as the Messiah, as the king who would come and restore Israel to its greatness. So they were looking for this king. They weren't looking for a savior. They weren't looking for a lamb that would die on the cross. Their eyes had been blinded to that through their um, adulterous, spiritually adulterous ways over the centuries of uh, Israel history to um, not look to God, but to look to man uh, for their answers, for their protection, for their religious needs and so forth. So it really got distorted. But one thing that has never changed throughout that history is the word of God. It's always been there for them if they would refer back to it. And that's what we're doing. It says that a prophet would be sent to them, this was Deuteronomy 18, 1,400 years before Christ came, that he would be sent to them. 
We spent some time over the last couple of programs going over a wonderful set of scriptures in Daniel chapter 9 and in Luke 19 to show you that God not only told them that he was sending this prophet to them, that they should listen to him, but also he told them when he would come. And he not only told them, you know, roughly in what century, he gave them the day. He gave them a way to understand the day on the calendar and the year when Jesus Christ would come into Jerusalem. And we understood that in, in Luke 19 because Luke referred back to Daniel. He referred back to Daniel uh, 9, and he said, you could have known the day. You could have recognized this day that I came, but now that you haven't, because they were so uh, warped in their thinking, um, the the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees and the leadership, particularly the religious leadership, were so warped that they missed it, even though it was right there before them in their own scriptures. So Jesus had come. And I wanted to go through a couple of more passages here in the New Testament as more confirmation of this wonderful prophecy that was given 1,400 years before Christ in Deuteronomy 18. And let's go to Matthew chapter 3. Uh, as I mentioned at the end of our last uh, teaching portion of our last program, that we would start out in Matthew 3 to establish some confirmations of the Old Testament prophecy of, of Christ. And what we have in Matthew chapter 3 is it's been talking about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist came as a forerunner, as a messenger to prepare the way for Christ. And remember, and we don't want to get into the details here, we'll do that later, um, as we have done before, uh, to make the point that Elijah had been promised as the one who would come and prepare the way for the Lord. And it turned out because the Israelites did not recognize Jesus as their Messiah, that it wasn't Elijah because Elijah would come the second time. At the second coming of Christ, Elijah will come before him and prepare the way. The Bible tells us that. But because they didn't believe, John the Baptist became the Elijah of the first coming, the first advent of Christ. And he was out baptizing people and sharing the, uh, the, uh, the good news with them, if you will, not the full good news because he didn't understand it yet because Christ had not been crucified. But he was baptizing, and people were putting a lot of faith in John the Baptist. In other words, they were looking at John the Baptist as maybe, maybe he's the guy. He's the guy we're looking for. So look what happens here in uh, Matthew chapter 3, uh, verse 16. Jesus has now come to John the Baptist at the Jordan and has told John, I want you to baptize me. And his reaction, John's reaction, would be our reaction. My goodness, you are God. And in this case, you're here manifested as the Son of God. Why in the world would I want to have to, why would I have to baptize you? You should be baptizing me. God had a very specific purpose in doing this, and we see it here in this passage. It says uh, in verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and it shows you there it was a water immersion baptism, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And here's the key. And behold, 
A voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So here is the manifestation of Jesus before the people, standing with John the Baptist. Now remember, the key thing to understand here is Jesus is standing next to John the Baptist. And the people are seeing both of these men. And God knows beforehand that these people are looking at the two of them and looking at John the Baptist because they've seen him in action. They know what he's doing, and they're thinking he's the dude. But now this Jesus has come along, and this is the very beginning of his ministry, so almost nobody knows him. And what does God do? God makes it audibly clear that it's Jesus that's my man, not John the Baptist. It's Jesus that you should be listening to. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. So God is giving credentials, if you will, giving the credibility to Jesus to make sure that they differentiate him from John the Baptist. That's very important to understand because God thinks it's important to make that distinction. And we talked, oh, several programs ago, and I want to come back to it because I think it fits in even better here now because of what we just read here in Matthew chapter 3. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and God is is validating. God is validating who this Jesus is compared to who the people thought was a uh, primary figure, in this case, John the Baptist. So God is differentiating, um, separating his son out, if you will, and that's the key thing, separating his son out. So now I want to stay in Matthew, and let's make another point about this, I think, which is so important, is in Matthew 17. Matthew 17. And, and just to, again, set the context here for Matthew 17, in Matthew 16, Jesus has called his 12 apostles back into him. Um, and I should, I should point out in Matthew 10, in Matthew 10, Jesus sends his 12 apostles out. And we know from Matthew chapter 10, it says, go to the lost tribes. Don't go to the Gentiles. Do not go to the Samaritans, um, which are the half-breed, if you will. And that's another story for another day from the Old Testament, where that's a mixture of the Israelites with the Assyrians and other cultures that don't believe in Jesus. So don't go to them and don't go to the Gentiles. I want you only to go to Israel. So they went out, and that's in Matthew 10. Then in Matthew 16, Jesus calls the 12 back in to a place way up in the very northern part of Israel called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was a major pagan worship location. And I've had the um, privilege and opportunity to stand there with my family and see the, the altars and whatnot to pagans. And so Jesus, I think, very, uh, very importantly picked that location because that's where the Israelites were going to worship other gods and other idols. And he brought his apostles back to that specific location, Caesarea Philippi, And he asked them that all-important question, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And you see how he uses the word Son of Man 
and not Son of God. We'll get into that in more detail later in this point number one. But he says the Son of Man because he knows in advance that the people have turned their backs on him as the promised Messiah, as the promised Son of God. And he looks at his 12 apostles and he says, and he asks them, who do the people say that I am? You've been out among them. I've sent you out across Israel. You've talked to them. You've canvassed them. You've surveyed them. Who do they say that I am? And in effect, they said, you are anybody but who you say you are. And they list, you know, John the Baptist and Elijah and different things. And Jesus said, all right, if they don't believe I am who I really am, who do you say that I am? And then, of course, Peter makes that very, very important profession that the church is based on. He said, you are the son of God. And Jesus says, you know, you didn't say that of man's volition. You said that because the, the Spirit of God led you to say that. And Jesus basically says right there, Peter, based on that profession of yours, that I am the Son of the living God, I will build my church, future tense, I will build my church based on that profession, that people who will profess what you just professed, Peter, they will become my church. So it's a very important passage. So this is a, it's an interesting point in the the spiritual walk of the apostles at this point because Jesus has just said, you know, they've verified to him, I am the son of the living God. Peter has verified that to him. They know that Israel, who Jesus and, and through the apostles as well, have been preached to that this is your promised Messiah. Please accept him. And they refuse to do that. And then right after this passage in in Matthew 16, Jesus then says for the first time, for the first time in his ministry, he looks at those 12 apostles and says, okay, from now on, I've got to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to be buried, but on the third day, I'm going to arise from the dead. And of course, the apostles, in effect, went nuts. In fact, Peter said, no way. And that's when that famous line, get thee behind me, Satan, when Jesus said that to Peter, because Peter didn't want to believe it. This is the first time that they had heard that Jesus was changing his ministry from a ministry to Israel as their promised king, as their promised Messiah. He was now changing his ministry and aiming it at what what would become the church, those who would believe him purely on faith. So it's a major transition, but it's a major low point for the Israelites. It's a major low point for the, the apostles because they, they think this whole ministry that they've been involved in is now going away. So Jesus wants to take them from this low point, uh, spiritual, uh, psychological, emotional low point in their life, in their ministry, and he, wanna take, he wants to take them to a high point. And it's not only a figurative high point, it's a literal high point it's called the Mount of Transfiguration, and we'll get into that uh, in our next teaching program in Matthew chapter 17. But we need to get into our uh, question that we have been answering from Rich in Indian Springs over the last um, couple of programs here, and it's a question that has to do with the Holy Spirit. And the question really revolves around a, a, a well researched, I have to say for Rich, a a well-researched question here 
that if the restrainer in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is taken out of the way uh, to usher in the seven-year tribulation, and if the Holy Spirit indwells the church and, and is taken out of the way, then how can the saints, or what are called the tribulation saints of Revelation 20 verse 4, how can they be saved if there's no Holy Spirit? And that is a very, very good question that needs uh, some some depth of research here. And we've started into that first by reading the passages in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And in the last lesson, we read Revelation 20, verse 4, talking about these saints who gave up their lives. They were killed by the forces of the Antichrist during the tribulation because they professed Jesus Christ. And of course, this is the Antichrist. This is the antithesis of Christ. He hates everything about Christ, and he therefore hates Christians who are the little Christ. That's what Christian means. So he's killing them, and it says that because of their faith, they are resurrected at the end of the tribulation, at the end of that seven-year tribulation, when Jesus Christ comes back to the earth, they are resurrected and are given glorified bodies, and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. So, yes, the Holy Spirit is active in the tribulation. He is active in a different way, and we want to talk about that. He, he's acting in a different way than he did with the church. The church, of course, has been taken out of the way during the tribulation. The church is in heaven. It does not experience any part of the tribulation because Jesus promised the church that they would not experience the wrath of that period. So now we wanted to establish a few more points about this, uh, about the function of God, the function of Jesus, and the function of the Holy Spirit uh, in the Bible and how that works. And the first of these questions was really a, a kind of a, you know, where did that question come from type thing? Why doesn't God himself, realizing that it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, why does he work to the Holy Spirit? Why does he work? Why doesn't God just come down here Himself and do this? And that's I think that's a it's a good question. You may not have ever thought about that before, um, or maybe not you know thought deeply enough to separate God, the function of God as the Father, as opposed to the Son and the Holy Spirit. But let's go ahead and take a, a look at this, and let's um, let's look first of all. Let's go to the very first verse of the very first chapter in the very first book. <laughs> so we're talking Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-1. And in Genesis 1-1, and here's where we have to have an understanding of the Hebrew language, the Hebrew words. And it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. And you look at that, and like most people, you look at that and you think of God, and you've got this kind of a, probably a cloudy concept in your mind of God. Who is God? Well, if you look at the Hebrew, you find that the word for God here is Elohim. Now, it's going to be a different word for God later on, and that's important to understand. Yes, the English says God in both places, but the Hebrew is different, and it gives you different characteristics of God. 
So that's one of the neat things about exploring Bible prophecy. Exploring means to dig in, look at the details, look at the Greek, look at the Hebrew, and see what God's really trying to get across. Because believe it or not, the Bible was not originally written in English for Americans. (laughs) But there are people that really think that. There are people that really bank on the fact that, hey, this is written to me in America and it's in English. And if you just read the Bible purely in English, you will miss some major, major concepts, particularly dealing with God and particularly dealing with sin, because sin is sin in English. But in the Greek, for instance, you have to, the Greek, they're totally different terms for sin. And if you don't understand that, you miss major concepts of what God's trying to get across to his children in his his word. So I wanted to point out that in uh, the creation account, which basically goes from Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-3, we find that everywhere it says God did this, God did this on the third day, the fourth day, whatever, it's Elohim. Elohim is plural. When you put an I-M on the end of a Hebrew word, that's like putting an S on the end of an English word. It makes it plural. So basically what we're being told is that the creation week was brought about by God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all working together. In fact, you see them listed there in the first couple of verses, that first three verses. Obviously, you've got God Elohim uh, in the beginning there. Then in verse 2, you see the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. So you have the Holy Spirit. Then God said that, let there be light. Well, here's light in verse 3. But you find that light, in terms of the, the physical light coming from the sun and reflected off of the uh, moon, the sun being reflected off the moon to give us that light at night, that all wasn't created until several days into creation. But he says there's light up front. Well, who's the light? Who's the light of the world? John chapter 1. It's Jesus. So you have the triune Godhead not only uh, made clear through the, the Hebrew word God, which means Elo, it's Elohim, plural, but you have the triune Godhead listed there. I want to make that point clear because it changes as we go forward and God starts to interact with man. So when we get to, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and if you would turn there, Genesis chapter 2, let me, let me show you. Let's go back up, for instance, to verse 3. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, Then God, then Elohim, blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which Elohim had created and made. Verse 4, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Adonai Yehovah. It says, Lord God. But now for the first time at the end of creation week in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we see a shift from Elohim God to Adonai Yehovah. So now we're talking about the personal Godhead. And that's what we want to explore in our next um, program is the interaction of of, um, Adonai Yehovah with man on the earth 
because it only happens in Genesis, and we don't see it again until Revelation, and it's important to understand that. So I'm excited to share that with you in our next program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Our special offer this month is Consider the Ant, Volume 1, The Basics. Consider the Ant is a biblically-based look at emergency preparedness. You'll be taken through the steps necessary to prepare yourself for the unexpected. This special DVD can be yours for only $20. To get your copy of Volume 1, The Basics from Consider the Ant, simply call us at 878-6279. That's 423-878-6279. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.